Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, September 23rd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The U.S. prepares for a government shutdown. Washington and Beijing announced two new working groups. The India-Canada row escalates. The White House sets up its first gun control office. Sudan's army chief warns its war could spill over into neighbors. Ukraine attacks Russia's Black Sea Fleet headquarters. The UK prepares to charge five Bulgarians with espionage. The US considers banning medical debt from Americans' credit reports. The Philippines accuses China of damaging its coral reefs. And chunks of an asteroid collected by NASA are set to land in Utah. In our top story, the U.S. government shutdown looms as the House GOP blocks a spending bill. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Reuters, NBC, ABC News, Voice of America, and BBC News. According to an official at the U.S. Office of Management and Budget, the White House on Friday began the process of telling federal agencies to prepare for a shutdown following House Republican opposition to its own defense bill. This process is standard practice seven days ahead of an anticipated shutdown date. On Thursday, the U.S. House of Representatives voted 216 to 212 against an $886 billion defense appropriations bill. Five Republicans joined Democrats in opposing the measures. The House has subsequently canceled votes from Friday from Friday to Sunday, stating that, quote, ample notice will be given for its future schedule. While former President Donald Trump has called on Republicans to defund all aspects of the Biden administration, Democrat House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, criticized House Republicans for paralyzing Congress. Without a full-year funding bill or a short-term continuing resolution, U.S. federal agencies will begin to shut down on October 1st. The defeat in the House of Representatives comes after the 221-212 Republican majority met under Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, Wednesday to reach a consensus within the party. It was believed that, following the meeting, Republicans had agreed on $1.5 trillion worth of spending measures, including the defense spending bill. Following the failed vote, McCarthy commented that some, quote, just want to burn the whole place down. Okay, thanks for those facts, Eric. The Washington Post brings us a Democratic narrative spin. Republicans have brought the House and potentially the entire federal government to a standstill thanks to circus-like infighting and a blind inability to understand the bigger picture. McCarthy must either cut a deal with the Democrats or give in to the far right of his party, inevitably undermining his own position regardless of the decision made. And we counter that with a Republican narrative coming from New York Post. More than anything, the House must be protected from the influence of the Democratic Party. Republican dissidents most likely will place party principles first, pushing pressure onto the Democrats as the funding deadline looms ever closer. The reckless policies of the Biden administration and his Democratic allies have created this political moment and soaring American debt. Aren't, isn't one of the key skill sets of being a politician to get people to see your side, be able to cut deals? Isn't that the whole point? Absolutely it is. All right. Well. The U.S. and China launch economic working groups. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Voice of America, the South China Morning Post, the Associated Press, Barron's, Forbes, and Reuters. On Friday, the U.S. Treasury Department announced the creation of two new U.S.-China working groups to open a line of communication concerning economic and financial matters between both nations. The Economic Working Group and the Finance Working Group will both be led by the U.S. Treasury Department, with China's Ministry of Finance leading alongside the Department on the Economic Group and the People's Bank of China on the Finance Group. Confirming the news, Chinese state broadcaster CCTV claimed that the two groups were to hold meetings on both a regular and ad hoc basis in order to enhance communication. The working groups were first agreed upon during U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's meeting with her Chinese counterpart, Vice Premier He Lifeng, in Beijing this July. Both groups will report to Yellen and He. A working group was previously set up between the two states in 2005, while U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo and Chinese Commerce Minister Wang Wentao pledged to set up a working group to seek solutions on trade and investment issues this August. The existence of annual strategic and economic dialogue meetings between U.S. State Departments and China reportedly ended in 2017. Scott, thanks for those facts. We begin our round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative. It's coming from CGTN. The creation of working groups between the U.S. and China can only be viewed as a positive policy following the unsustainable pace of reciprocal countermeasures the two states have imposed upon one another in recent times. Given the need for clarity between China and the U.S., the attempted use of dialogue is relief amid the growing threat of confrontation. The Washington Post brings us this establishment critical narrative. So far, despite enhanced dialogue, meetings between the U.S. and China have rewarded little material gain for the world. China continues to evade the U.S.'s concerns over its behavior, and Washington skips around topics that may anger Beijing time and time again. It has been proven that, despite best intentions, dialogue between international powers simply is not enough. The Metaculous Prediction Community offers their nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 20% chance of a U.S.-China war before 2035. And uh, when I took an international negotiation class, I remember one of the first things they taught was don't give up anything substantive in the negotiations in exchange for something like the terms of where and how you're negotiating. Like, uh, uh, you know, you you don't want to give up. Okay, you get- uh, yeah, like okay, I get to choose what we're having for lunch at the meetings. Right. Okay, well, in exchange, we need three bodies. <laughs> Turning our attention to India as they suspend visas for Canadians as the row escalates. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Dawn, BBC News, NBC, and Al Jazeera. On Thursday, India stopped issuing visas to Canadian citizens and asked Ottawa to reduce its diplomatic presence in New Delhi amid an escalating diplomatic row over the murder of a Sikh activist on Canadian soil. Though it didn't provide any evidence, the Indian Foreign Ministry said Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government has taken the decision due to security threats to its staff in its consulates in Canada that have disrupted their normal functioning. The suspension of visa services also applies to Canadians in a third country, because of Canadian diplomatic interference in India's internal affairs. Canada's visa services remain open in India. 
Tensions have flared between the two countries after Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said on Monday that Ottawa was reviewing, quote, credible allegations suggesting that India was potentially involved in the June assassination of a prominent Sikh leader in suburban Vancouver. Trudeau claimed that Indian government agents may have been responsible for the murder of Hardeep Singh Najjar, whom New Delhi had designated a, quote, terrorist over his advocacy of an independent Sikh state. Dismissing Trudeau's charges, India accused Canada of providing shelter to Khalistani terrorists and extremists who demand a separate Sikh homeland in India's northern state of Punjab. Thanks for that update, Eric. The Wire brings us Narrative A. Canada's allegations are serious and unprecedented in the country's history. If it's true that India was involved in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil, then that gross violation of Canada's sovereignty must be met with swift and decisive action. Ottawa must get to the bottom of the matter, even if it means ruffling feathers in New Delhi. Narrative B comes from Op India. It's shameful that Canada is accusing New Delhi of killing Nijar on foreign soil. Although Nijar was a terrorist involved in a conspiracy to kill a Hindu priest, that doesn't mean India was complicit in his death. Canada must stop levying baseless allegations that detract from the real threat of secessionists who threaten India's sovereignty and territorial integrity. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict there's a 90% chance that the right-wing incumbent BJP will win the 2024 national election in India. Vice President Harris to lead the first White House Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Here are the facts. As agreed upon by ABC News, CBS, the Associated Press, Politico, and Reuters. U.S. President Joe Biden on Thursday announced the formation of a new Office of Gun Violence Prevention, which will implement current laws and work with local officials to pass gun legislation at the state level. Biden tapped VP Kamala Harris, a former prosecutor, and California Attorney General to lead the office. Biden issued a statement saying that absent action by Congress to enact popular gun regulations, including universal background checks and a ban on assault weapons, the new office will fill the void. Longtime Biden aide Stephanie Feldman will be the office's director, while Greg Jackson, executive director of the Community Justice Action Fund, and Rob Wilcox, the senior director for federal government affairs at Every Town for Gun Safety, will serve as deputy directors. According to the Gun Violence Archive, so far in 2023, the U.S. has faced more than 500 mass shootings, which constitutes four or more individuals shot in one incident. Scott, thanks for the facts. And here is our first spin, a Democratic narrative coming from Washington Post. Biden has been an advocate for tighter gun laws for decades. And this is yet another step in the direction of making the country safer. Although it's not an end-all, be-all solution, having a central point of coordination for passing and enforcing gun control policies will make a difference. Biden is fulfilling his campaign promises to a large swath of his base. And the diametrically opposed Republican narrative comes from Daily Wire. Biden seemingly never misses an opportunity to attack the Second Amendment rights of law-abiding gun owners. From reinterpreting clear federal statutes to opening an entire office devoted to gun control, this administration consistently scoffs at the Constitution in order to cater to special interest groups over everyday citizens. We have a statistics-based nerd narrative coming from our friends at Metaculous Prediction Community. They're saying that there's a 50% chance that there will be at least 1.405 small firearms per capita in the U.S. in the year 2029. 
The Sudan Army Chief warns the UN of a regional conflict spillover. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Al Arabia, TRT Africa, The New Arab, and Arab News. In an address to the UN, Sudan's Army Chief and President of the Transitional Sovereign Council, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, warned that the civil war in his country could spill over into neighboring countries. He called on the international community to apply pressure on the Paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, which he characterized as terrorists. Al-Burhan said the danger of war threatened, quote, regional and international peace and security as rebels had sought support from outlaws and terrorist groups in other countries. This is like the spark of a war, a war that will spill over to other countries in the region, he added. General Al-Burhan, who has been Sudan's de facto ruler since a coup in 2021, also alluded to the idea that the rival RSF has ties with the Russian mercenary group Wagner, which is subject to Western sanctions over alleged abuses in Africa. Fighting broke out in Sudan on April 15th, following the collapse of a plan to integrate the army and the RSF, led by Al-Burhan's former deputy, General Mohamed Hamdan Daglo. According to the non-governmental organization ACLED, the conflict has killed at least 7,500 people and displaced approximately 5 million people. The U.S. earlier this month imposed sanctions on the leaders of the RSF, including Abdel Rahim Hamdan Daglo, brother of the group's leader and senior commander, over alleged abuses. In a video released on Thursday, General Mohamed Hamdan Daglo said his forces were fully prepared for a ceasefire and comprehensive political talks to end the conflict. All right, Eric, we have a pro-establishment narrative on this story from The Guardian. The United Nations was created for moments exactly like this. The Sudanese army, after extinguishing all other possibilities to stop this war, is now in desperate need of help to end the fighting by prosecuting, to the fullest extent, all factions engaged in terroristic behavior. The RSF's crimes and atrocities necessitate accountability. The establishment critical narrative comes from Gray Zone. Sudan's problems, from extreme poverty and malnutrition to today's armed conflicts, stem not from warring factions who pop out of nowhere, but rather from Western meddling dating back a hundred years or more. Western governments so, quote, kindly offering humanitarian aid today are the same ones who toyed with Sudan for decades solely to steal its resources and combat China's rise in the region. And Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative prediction. They say there's a 50% chance that more than 10,000 people will die in the Sudan conflict in the year 2023. Ukraine attacks Russia's Black Sea Fleet headquarters. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by RT, TASS, the Kiev Independent, the Week, and the Associated Press. On Friday, the Russian Defense Ministry alleged that one serviceman was missing after Ukraine launched a missile attack on Russia's Black Sea Fleet in the Crimean port of Sevastopol. The Russian-administered governor of Sevastopol, Mikhail Razovhayev, said no one was injured in the attack but did not provide additional details on any potential casualties. Though he said civilian infrastructure was not damaged, firefighters continue battling the blaze. Earlier, Razvov Hayev warned residents that another attack may come, though he later dropped the warning but urged locals to keep calm and avoid central Sevastopol due to ongoing special measures. 
According to a statement from the Russian Defense Ministry, the country's air defense system shot down five missiles. It added that the Black Sea Fleet was damaged due to Ukraine's attack. Meanwhile, Ukraine's Air Force commander, Mykola Oleschuk, posted a video showing large plumes of smoke over the historic building. Thanking the Ukrainian pilots once again, he said Sevastopol is the city of the naval forces of Ukraine's armed forces, together to victory. The attack comes a day after U.S. President Joe Biden announced a new military aid package worth $325 million for Kyiv during Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to Washington. The security assistance includes ammunition for HIMARS multiple rocket launchers and anti-tank weapons. Scott, thank you for those facts. The first spin is a pro-Ukraine narrative coming from Politico. Ukraine is justified in attacking Russian ports, ships, and naval facilities on the Black Sea to weaken Moscow's war machine. Russia continues to launch missiles at Ukraine from its vessels in the Black Sea and has been threatening to block the Black Sea shipping routes that Ukraine has been using to export grain. And the pro-Russia response comes from Sputnik International. Friday's incident will have no bearing on the overall direction of the conflict. However, there can be no justification for such terror attacks which put innocent civilians' lives at risk. Crimea has always been integral to Russia. It's futile to think that Ukraine can seize it by attacking Sevastopol and the Black Sea Fleet. The potential role of the West in this attack must also be probed. The Metaculous Prediction community says that there's a 50% chance that Ukraine will regain control of at least 50 square kilometers of the Crimean Peninsula before January 1st, 2024 drags on and on and on okay it does it it's amazing that it's basically uh, started when we it was like day 30 when we started doing this thing together and now here we are i'm at least glad we don't say what day it is anymore you know oh i know uh, the roundup day 528 (laughs) i'm glad that's over (laughs) yeah me too five bulgarian nationals have been charged with spying for russia in the uk Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Guardian, Reuters, Independent, BBC News, and CBS. The UK's Crown Prosecution Service revealed on Thursday that three men and two women suspected of spying for Russia will face charges of conspiracy to commit espionage. The five Bulgarian nationals are due to appear for a first hearing at Westminster Magistrates Court on Tuesday, where they will be charged with conspiring to collect information intended to be directly or indirectly useful to an enemy. Accused of offenses that took place between August 2020 and February 2023, the alleged spies living in London and Norfolk were identified as Orlan Rusev, 45, Iser Jambazov, 41, Katrine Ivanova, 31, Ivan Stoyanov, 31, and Vanya Gabarova, 29. Rusev, Jambazov, and Ivanova were previously arrested in February and charged with possessing false documents with improper intention, allegedly including fake passports and ID cards for the UK and other European countries. The five are accused of having worked in an operational spy cell for the Russian security services. Alleged activities include monitoring targets, participating in operations in the UK and Europe, as well as gathering intelligence for Moscow. More than 400 suspected Russian spies were expelled from Europe last year, according to the head of Britain's domestic intelligence agency, MI5, Ken McCollum. All right. Thanks, Eric. Narrative A comes from Euronews. 
The charges are another blow to Moscow's agent network in Europe, since hundreds of Russian spies were kicked out of their embassies across Europe following Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. The Kremlin has been deprived of its core agent infrastructure. To infiltrate Europe, the Russian regime must now take greater risks by relying on ordinary Russian citizens and foreigners. The case of the five Bulgarian nationals shows that Russian intelligence services are running out of human resources for their espionage activities. Narrative B comes from Financial Times. This case may seem spectacular and show that the UK is cracking down on espionage, but it's worth taking a closer look. The unprofessional actions of the Bulgarian nationals indicate that they were by no means top agents of Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service. The West has dealt several blows to Moscow's spy network in recent years, and the current case underscores the threat that Britain faces from within. However, with the West and Russia engaged in an undeclared war, espionage is more likely on the increase rather than on the decrease. The U.S. seeks to ban medical debt from credit reports. Here are the facts. As agreed upon by CNN, CBS, CNBC, and Reuters. The Biden administration announced Thursday that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB, is considering barring consumer credit companies from including medical debt and collection information on individuals' credit reports. According to the CFPB, 20% of Americans have medical debt on their credit reports, which can affect their ability to obtain mortgages, loans, and credit cards. The agency also found that 58% of all third-party debt collection on consumer credit reports was for medical bills. The CFPB also found that medical debt, which according to a KFF Health News NPR investigation, affects roughly 100 million Americans and does not accurately predict a consumer's credit worthiness unlike other forms of debt. The CFPB cited the Fair Credit Reporting Act as the legal basis for the proposal, which, if enacted, could help the 80% of medical debt holders who have zero or negative net worth, according to a Brookings-based think tank. The study also found that 27% of black families had medical debt, as opposed to 16.8% of non-black households. The three largest credit agencies, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, last year stopped reporting medical debt of less than $500. However, that decision excluded millions of debt holders, prompting calls for more widespread protection, including banning hospitals from selling patient debt or denying care to those with past due bills. Though the $500 or less move left out 70% of medical debt holders, the companies also extended the grace period for applying debt to individuals' reports from six months to one year, giving patients time to address repayments with health insurers. Scott, thanks for those facts. Narrative A comes from NPR Online News. Medical debt, something no one deserves and often appears due to unforeseen accidents, shouldn't hinder people's ability to access financial services. If we want people to make money to repay their debt, then we shouldn't ruin the credit report that helps them grow financially in other aspects of their lives. Over 100 million people are burdened by this debt crisis, so the government must step in to help this significant portion of the population. And Narrative B comes from Business Insider. While significant amounts of medical debt are certainly hurting some Americans, the fact of the matter is that such debt doesn't affect credit scores nearly as much as it used to. As medical debt is something financial agencies still use to assess prospective clients' credit worthiness, patients should make sure they make smart choices when assuming debt, such as not putting it on credit cards and reaching out to nonprofit credit report organizations. 
The Philippines mulls legal action against the People's Republic of China over coral reefs. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, WION, South China Morning Post, and Philstar. The Philippines is accusing China of destroying coral reefs located within its Exclusive Economic Zone, or EEZ, in the South China Sea and is considering legal action against Beijing. The Philippines Foreign Ministry said Thursday that various agencies are examining the extent of the environmental damages at the Iroquois Reef in the Spratly Islands. Solicitor General Minardo Guevara will guide any filings against China for Manila. Manila is poised to bring its second case against Beijing concerning South China Sea disputes to the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague, Netherlands. In 2016, the court ruled in favor of the Philippines, but China didn't acknowledge the ruling. China has long been involved in disputes with the Philippines and other Southeast Asian countries over territories in the South China Sea, as Beijing maintains its, quote, nine-dash line, grants it control over nearly the entire area. Beijing has also been building artificial islands in the region and has deployed its military in waters claimed by other countries. Filipino Justice Secretary Jesus Crispin Ramula says that China's environmental destruction is a, quote, sin against humanity that deserves legal action regardless of the territorial dispute. Diplomats from Japan and the U.S. have also called the destruction of the coral reefs very alarming news. PRC Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning stated that the Philippines is in fact harming the South China Sea ecosystem by scuttling illegally grounded warships. Thanks, Eric. The Sydney Morning Herald brings us the anti-China narrative. In addition to ignoring international court rulings regarding disputed territories in the South China Sea, China is also destroying coral reefs located in the Philippines' territory and creating devastating environmental damage. China acts with impunity as it completely disregards diplomacy and decency. The Philippines has every right to pursue legal action against Beijing for its reckless actions towards the marine ecosystem. The pro-China narrative comes from Benar News. The Philippines is spreading fabrications about the PRC to air its grievances over a territorial dispute in the South China Sea. Beijing isn't damaging any coral reefs, and if any country is harming the ecosystem, and if any country is harming the ecosystem of the Pacific, it's the Philippines with its host of illegal warships grounded in the ocean and rusting away. These are groundless accusations. Yeah, first, we've all been using the wrong uh, sunblock, apparently, and now this. <laughs> now this. An asteroid chunk collected by NASA is set to plunge into the Utah desert. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, NPR Online News, and The Weather Channel. After traveling four billion miles and spending seven years in space, NASA's Origins Spectral Interpretation, Resource Identification, and Security Regolith Explorer, or OSIRIS-REx spacecraft, is set to land in the Utah desert Sunday, carrying about nine ounces of rocks and debris collected from an asteroid called Bennu. The material from the 4.5 billion-year-old Bennu, which was 200 million miles away when the capsule made contact, is believed to contain dust and pebbles from the time our solar system first formed. It will also be the largest amount of space material brought home since the Apollo astronauts returned with moon rocks. OSIRIS-REx first launched on a rocket from Cape Canaveral, Florida in 2016, taking more than two years to reach the roughly third of a mile wide asteroid. 
once there it spent another year mapping the space rock to find the best place to land. Scientists will use the years-long study to understand more about how planets formed, how life began, and the risk of asteroids colliding with Earth. Bennu currently has a 1 in 2700 chance of hitting Earth by the end of the 2100s. The fridge-sized capsule will slow its descent before it hits Earth, which makes both wind and rain a potential hindrance to a successful touchdown. Before it parachutes down, weather balloons will fly up 60,000 feet to check the weather conditions to narrow down the best landing spot within the vast Utah test and training range. The University of Arizona's Dante Loretta, the principal investigator of the mission, said, The moment the parachute opens, I'll know we've made it. He added that he and his team have watched parachute mishaps, quote, way too many times. Scott, thank you for those facts. Our first spin is Narrative A, and it's coming from the conversation. While some will argue studying a bunch of space rocks is a waste of time and money, celestial missions like the OSIRIS-REx are necessary for understanding how the Earth formed and the potential risks of asteroids and meteorites colliding with Earth. Furthermore, the existence or at least potential existence of water has been found on space rocks like Bennu, which provides scientists with a puzzle piece in the quest to find extraterrestrial life. If we wish to understand our solar system and protect Earth from enormous flying rocks, we best not defund the only agency in search of such answers. And Narrative B comes from the Planetary Society. The fact isn't that NASA programs are useless. But when Congress first funded the Planetary Defense Program over 20 years ago, it didn't expect a 4,000% budget increase while allocating less than 1% of it to actually defending the Earth from incoming asteroids. NASA, along with the congressmen who oversee the agency, must revert to its original promise to study planetary defense of interplanetary objects. Otherwise, space exploration is simply a bottomless pit with no fiscal responsibility that the American people can't afford right now. And it's no surprise that the nerds of Metaculous Prediction community have a nerd narrative. They say there's a 9.1% chance that a space elevator will successfully be built by the year 2100. I want to keep both feet on the ground here. You know, I, I'll go up to the second floor, but I'm, I like Earth. You know, if other people want to leave, that's just more room for me. <laughs> hey, that's a pretty good attitude to have. Yeah. yeah. Just stay put. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, September 23rd, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.News. You can also download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time for the Verity Podcast. Verity.